really a joy and a privilege to worship Christ with you all this morning. I've had the chance to meet some of you already, and you have been so incredibly uh, kind and supportive of me, and I'm so grateful to meet a lot of you already, and I'm eager to meet more of you in the days and weeks ahead. How many of you have seen the award-winning Disney movie Moana? Okay, a few of you. Good, good. For the, for the six of you who have seen it, um, <laughs> you will remember uh, that one of the most famous scenes in the movie is when Moana first meets Maui. Now, for those of you who have not seen the movie, Moana is the main character. She's a young woman, and her village is in grave danger. They're running out of food, and they are also under the oppression of dark forces. And so Moana runs away from her village to look for this special stone that will save her people. And as she's searching for this stone, she runs into this character named Maui. Now Maui, who's played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, by the way, he's an extremely arrogant demigod. He's totally full of himself. So it's not surprising that when they first run into each other, Maui thinks Moana has come to lavish praise and thankfulness for him, for his greatness, (laughs) when in reality, she thinks that it's his fault that her village is declining in the first place. So anyways, there's this funny scene when they first run into each other, and they completely misunderstand each other's intentions. So this is a, uh, a dialogue that turns into a now famous song, and I am going to have Brian Coffey come on up and sing that for us now. (laughs) So I'll share the dialogue with you, or the song, uh, so you can picture this again. Maui, super arrogant, played by The Rock. Moana comes to him, and he says this. He says, So what I believe you are trying to say is, uh, thank you. And she goes, thank you. And he says, you're welcome. (laughs) And she goes, wait, no, no, I wasn't, I I didn't, why would I ever? And he goes, okay, okay, I see what's happening here. You're face to face with greatness. And it's strange, you don't even know how to feel. It's adorable. It's nice to see that humans never change. Open your eyes, let's begin. Yes, it's really me, Maui. Breathe it in. I know it's a lot. The hair, the bod, when you're staring at a demigod. What can I say except, you're welcome for the tides, the suns, the skies. Hey, it's okay, it's okay, you're welcome. I'm just an ordinary demiguy. And as funny as this scene is, Moana is rightfully confused and even offended by Maui's words. You can tell by the look on her face that she's thinking something like, how in the world could I be thankful How in the world could I be thankful when my village, and frankly, my whole life, is in decline? Everything is in shambles right now. And perhaps some of you can relate, at least in some ways, with this scene. Maybe someone has come up to you before, and they have said, Oh, uh, well, just, just be happy. Or just be thankful. But they don't realize that there's a deep pain or a great loss, or an unfulfilled longing in your soul, and it feels nearly impossible to be thankful in the midst of it. Maybe your life, or an area of your life, feels like it is in decline, 
And the pain of that experience threatens to crowd out your joy and your gratitude in life. You know you should feel thankful, but maybe you just don't know how. Perhaps this is how some of the Colossians felt when they first read Paul's letter. Seven times, seven times in this short little letter to the Colossians, Paul charges the church to be thankful. In fact, in our text for today, Paul goes as far as to tell the church to overflow with thankfulness. And yet, get this, Colossae was a city very much in decline. Many people in that city had undergone great loss of their business, of their wealth, of their reputation, even of their hope. Oh, and by the way, in just a few short years after Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, what was left of this declining city would be completely obliterated by an earthquake. Now, here's the point. It's to these very people, to people living not in a time of flourishing, but in a time of loss and decline, that Paul charges to overflow with thankfulness. Now, the question, of course, is how? How in the world could a people like this, living in a time like this, not only be thankful, but even overflow with thankfulness? And honestly, how can we? How can we overflow with thankfulness, not only in seasons of flourishing, but also in times of loss and decline? I have only been working at uh, Chapel Street for a couple of months now, but already in my short time here, I have met a handful of people who have experienced or who are experiencing profound suffering. And if that's you today, I want to say from my heart, I am sorry. Christ sees your suffering. He knows what you are going through, and he wants to walk with you in the midst of it. And I'm eager to dive into God's word together now and this morning because in our text for today, Paul gives the declining church in Colossae three wonderful reasons for hope and even gratitude. And I believe that each of these things can give us hope and gratitude as well, not only in times of flourishing, but also in times of loss and decline. So let's, let's pray now, and then we will dive into our text for today. Lord, we ask that you would do just this by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see and savor Christ this morning in ways that would lead us to true hope and true joy and true gratitude. We pray these things in his name. Amen. How is it that we can overflow with thankfulness, not only in seasons of flourishing, but also in times of loss and decline? According to Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, we can overflow with thankfulness through union with Christ, who turns emptiness into fullness, death into life, and guilt into grace. So let's look at these one at a time, beginning with union with Christ turns emptiness into fullness. And if you would uh, follow along, please, in your Bible as I read Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, and I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning. It's also up on the screen. 
the Holy Spirit through Paul says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. At least eight times in our passage for today, including twice in the verses we just read, you may have noticed, Paul uses the phrase, in him, or with him, or in Christ, or with Christ. Now, does anyone know which wonderful biblical doctrine these little phrases are a reference to? Yes, let's go. Yes, union with Christ. Every time. Okay, you, you guys are going to be reading your New Testaments. These little phrases, they're scattered all throughout the New Testament. You'll find them over 100 times. Some people have counted over 200 times in the New Testament. You'll find these phrases. You are in Christ or with Christ or in him or with him. And every time you see these little phrases, this is cueing you in to, to think union with Christ. So you say, Okay, union with Christ. Is that like kind of some, some minor sort of insignificant doctrine? No, no, no. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is the greatest gift given to mankind. You say, do you think maybe that's like a little bit of an overstatement? I don't think so. What is union with Christ? Union with Christ is the assurance of two glorious blessings. Union with Christ is the assurance of two glorious blessings. What do you get through union with Christ? You get two things. Number one, you get Christ. You get the most beautiful, most glorious, most praiseworthy, most trustworthy, most safe, most patient, most loving person in the universe. He's yours. You get the person for whom your soul was literally created to live and breathe and enjoy and worship according to Colossians 1.16. You get the preeminent one from Colossians 1.15 through 20, a passage many of you have worked on memorizing. This beautiful praiseworthy, trustworthy, loving, preeminent Savior, he's yours. He's yours now. He's yours for the rest of your life. He's yours for all eternity. He will never leave you or forsake you. This Savior, Jesus Christ, he's yours and you are his forever. This is part of the beauty of union with Christ. So what do you get through union with Christ? You get two things. Number one, you get Christ. Number two, you get, well, I guess it's not that big of a deal. Only all of the benefits of Christ's redemption. All of the benefits of Christ's redemption. You say, well, what are the benefits of Christ's redemption? Oh, I love that question. How long do you have? I will get us started today on some of the benefits of Christ's redemption. In particular, we're going to look at three of them. But if we were to try to go through all of the benefits of Christ's redemption, that would easily take us a full eternity to get through, and it will. 
it will, enjoying and marveling at the beauty of Christ and the benefits of his redemption, enjoying and marveling at union with Christ, this is the great joy of heaven. Oh, and by the way, eternity won't be long enough to plumb these depths. Christ is so full. He's so full to overflowing of beauty and blessing. That union with him, what is it like? It's like an infinite ocean of joy. And our minds and souls can only in this life comprehend maybe, maybe a cupful. In fact, when, when you hold that little cup of communion in your hand later today, and when you hold that cup in your hand in the future, let that be a reminder to you that you, believer, you are united to a Savior who is infinitely full, infinitely full of beauty and goodness and blessing. Let me find uh, So, okay, so we have this, so we have union with Christ in verses 6 through 7 leads to fullness. Now let's look at how this theme continues in verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 through 10 now. It says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy, and notice this, empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world, rather than Christ. For the entire, notice this, fullness, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over all rule and authority. Have any of you heard of the pastor Tim Keller before? Okay. So in his excellent book entitled Making Sense of God, which I would recommend to anyone, in his excellent book, Making Sense of God, Keller points to three primary ways that people try to deal with their emptiness inside. Three primary ways that people try to deal with their emptiness inside, and see if you can locate yourself in one of these three groups, or maybe all three of these groups. The first group of people Keller refers to as the young. The young. Keller says that that these people, these are those people who can live their lives relatively content with the discontentment and emptiness inside. You say, how? Why? Oh, well, these people believe that the only reason why they feel empty and discontent is because they don't have it yet. They don't have a job or a house or money or a spouse or some degree of of reputation. These people say, and maybe you can recognize this from someone or from even your own soul, of course I still feel empty. Of course I still feel incomplete. Of course I don't feel satisfied. The only reason why is because I don't have it yet. But once I get it, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be full. Then I will be complete. Of course, Keller says that the worst day of these people's lives are when they do get everything they ever dreamed of, but the emptiness, they look inside and it's still there. As Jim Carrey famously put it, by the way, Jim Carrey, famous uh, uh, actor, person, (laughs) Uh, he said, I think everybody 
should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. The first group of people are the young. The second group of people Keller refers to as something like the mature or the enlightened. (laughs) These are the people who say, you know, I've lived my life long enough to realize that it is not out there. You know, like there's nothing really in this world that can satisfy my emptiness. Uh, So what do you do do with your emptiness? Well, uh, you got to just kind of, just got to live with it, you know? (laughs) Nothing really you can do about it. Keller says that when these people feel that emptiness creeping up inside their hearts, what do they do with it? Well, they don't necessarily try to satisfy it because they don't believe that there's anything in this world that can satisfy it. And so they, they move to one of two other options. Either, number one, they suppress that feeling, or number two, they try to distract themselves or medicate from it. The third group of people, as you can probably guess, Keller points to Christians. Christians who say that emptiness, it is there, it can be satisfied, and it will be satisfied, but it can only be satisfied through Christ. And that's exactly what we see in our passage right here. Notice the warning again in verse 8. It says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Now, you might be thinking the same thing. I was thinking the first time I I read this text as I was studying it, and that is, what is he talking about here? What, what, What is this philosophy, human tradition, elements of the world? It seems that there may have been in Colossae false teachers saying, hey, the path to true fullness It's through some human tradition or a worldly philosophy. So that might be Gnosticism or legalism or asceticism or mysticism. And we will consider some of these philosophies in weeks ahead. But the main point to see here is twofold. Number one, these worldly philosophies, they are empty. They cannot lead to true fullness. They cannot lead to true satisfaction. They cannot lead to true forgiveness or salvation. They are empty. And number two, these worldly philosophies, they are opposed to Christ. Meanwhile, notice the contrast in verses 9 through 10. Verses 9 through 10. You might look at these verses and say, are these towering verses? Yes. Yes, these are towering verses. Uh, Listen to this. It says, for the entire fullness The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. We could probably preach five sermons on these two verses alone. They are so rattling with with beauty and, and excellence. As I studied these verses, I thought about Augustine's famous prayer to God, which some of you may know. Do, do you remember this? In the opening lines of the confessions, Augustine prays to God and he says, O oh Lord, you have created us for yourself. I wonder if he was thinking Colossians 1.16 there. He says, O oh Lord, you have created us for yourself and our hearts are, what does he say? Restless. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, in God. And isn't it so true? Are not our hearts restless until they find their rest in God? You say, well, I thought we were talking about Christ this morning. Now you're going to talk about God? 
Yes. Yes, according to this passage, all of God's fullness dwells bodily in Christ. The reason why Christ can satisfy you and fill you and save you in a way that no created thing can is because Christ is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. Absolutely amazing. Is Jesus Christ God? Yes. Yes, he is. Is Jesus Christ man? Yes. Yes, he is. Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior, truly God, truly man, distinguishable yet inseparable from the Father, and you have been filled by him. Absolutely amazing. As, as one pastor put it, he said, Jesus has all of God, and you have all of Jesus, so in Jesus you have all of God. Believer, in all of your emptiness, in all of your emptiness, do not look to anything created. Instead, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, worldly philosophies, empty traditions, those things will look strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How is it that we can overflow with thankfulness, not only in times of flourishing, but also in times of loss and decline? First, through union with Christ, who turns emptiness into fullness. Second, through union with Christ, who turns death into life. And we won't spend as much time on these last two points. Let's read verses 11 through 13 now. It says, You are also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. About a month ago, uh, Joe Scavato, uh, who's, who's a pastor at, at Mill Creek, many of you know him, uh, Joe Scavato and Paige Peltier, and I visited Taylor University. And during one of their chapel services, we sung this song that was extremely powerful. It was called Death Was Arrested. Have any of you happened to hear this song, Death Was Arrested, before? Okay, thank you. I hadn't either. <laughs> and after the service, I was like, Paige, that song was so good. Have you heard that before? And she's like, Blake, I've known that song for like six years. I was like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but this song, what makes this song so powerful is that this, this song, Death Was Arrested, it's, it's about going from death to life. It describes Christ's death and then his resurrection. And get this, during the chapel service, in the middle of the song, there's this lyric that we sing that goes like this. It says, Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And then the band goes silent, and the room goes silent. And for first-time listeners like me, you're thinking, is that it? 
<laughs> is the song over? Am I in the right church? But then, of course, the, the, the energy comes back on in the room, the band comes back on, and then we sing these words, and then we sing, but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and our life began. And then the place just goes nuts, by the way. It was really, it was really encouraging. Um, but part of what makes that pause, that pause in the song so powerful is that often in our lives, we feel that same pause, that gap, that silence, that waiting, that wondering. Sometimes in our lives we feel defeated and we wonder, is that it? Is the song of my life over? Has heaven lost? Has darkness and death won? But the great hope of that song and of our passage right here and frankly of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself is that through union with Christ, death does not get the final word. According to Colossians uh, 2, verses 11 through 13, so 11 through 13, the verses we just read, if you are united to Christ, that means that when Christ died, you died with him. When, you, when he was buried, you and your sins were buried with him. And when he rose... When he rose, what we celebrate on Easter, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, your eternal life began and it was secured forever. This is what is symbolized in baptism. When we, uh, we are buried with Christ in baptism, we are raised with him to newness of life. And here's the point. Just as death could not defeat Christ, death cannot defeat anyone united to him either. You might say, well, what about all that circumcision stuff <laughs> in there? Well, the, the references to circumcision in this passage, they have the same death-to-life theme. When we are spiritually circumcised, it says a circumcision done without hands. And by the way, this was encouraging to me the last week or, or two as I was studying this. Uh, when it says we are spiritually circumcised, it means that our flesh, that everything worldly in us, it is cut off. What do you mean it's cut off? It, it means we are no longer enslaved to it. It is no longer attached to our identity. We become a new creation with a new family, and we go from death to life. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 is helpful here, and this is up on the screen. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And then notice this. Why? Why are we spiritually circumcised through Christ? That you may live that you may live. We can have hope both in salvation and in sanctification because through union with Christ, darkness and death and sin, they no longer have power over us. Not because, not because we are strong in our own willpower, but because Christ has defeated all of our enemies on the cross and he has given us everything that we need to walk in obedience to him. How can we overflow with thankfulness not only in seasons of flourishing, but also in times of loss and decline? Through union with Christ, who turns emptiness into fullness, death into life, and very briefly, third and final point, union with Christ turns guilt into grace. Notice the very end of verse 13, and we will read through verse 15 here. It says, God made you alive with him, and five beautiful words forgave us all our 
trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He, Christ, triumphed over them in him. There are two two prevalent false teachings in our world today when it comes to sin. Two prevalent false teachings in our world today when it comes to sin, and see if you can identify which one maybe you're more prone or more tempted to believe. The first false teaching is that your sins have been nailed to your identity. Your sins have been nailed to your identity. This is at times the, the, uh, the message of an abusive authority figure who says, you are a failure. You are a screw-up. You are a liar. At your core, you are your sin. There's nothing you can do about it. Your sins have been nailed to your identity. Now that's just your destiny forever. Oh, and by the way, sometimes we don't even need an abusive authority figure to tell us this, right? Sometimes we just tell ourselves those things. Or sometimes Satan tempts us to believe those things and we just believe it. So the first false teaching when it comes to sin is that your sins have been nailed to your identity. The second false teaching that's prevalent in our world today is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is that your sins have been nailed to nothing. Your sins don't need to be nailed to anything because your sin isn't a big deal. Your sin doesn't need judgment. That's an antiquated idea. This is at times the message of people who don't take the Bible very seriously. They say, don't get so down about sin, all that judgment stuff. God won't really judge your sin. Just don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Let's be real. Think about the last time that you have felt swallowed up by guilt and shame over sin. In that moment, we desperately need a hope better than just don't worry about it. We know that our sin needs payment. That's why we often try, oftentimes try to take the payment on ourselves. We know it needs payment. Neither of these false teachings can lead to true hope in life. Not the teaching that your sin has been nailed to your identity. Not the teaching that your sin has been nailed to nothing. Neither of these teachings can lead to true hope in life. Fortunately, Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 oxygenate our gasping souls. What is our sin nailed to according to this passage? What are they nailed to according to verse 14? What does it say there? Yes. Christ's cross. Now I want you to see very briefly how significant this is. What would this have sounded like to first century Christians hearing this message read? In first century Roman culture, the, the crucified criminal he would have his crimes nailed to a sign above his head on the cross. So people walking by would be like, oh, yep, murder, (laughs) theft, treason, sedition. According to this passage, which 
crimes were nailed to Christ's cross. Yes. Mine, yours, our sins nailed to Christ's cross. Our sins are the crimes for which Christ willingly and effectively died. You say, well, which ones? Which of our sins were nailed to the cross of Christ? What does it say at the end of verse 13? One three-letter word that gives us eternal hope. All. All. He forgave all our trespasses. All of our sins were nailed to Christ's cross. Think about this. All of your past sins. All of your present sins. All of your future sins. He knows them all. And he has forgiven them all through Christ. Let's flip this question around. If, if you are united to Christ, let me ask you, which of your sins were not nailed to the cross of Christ? Which of your sins were not paid for in full? None. None. Not the oldest of your sins, not the newest of your sins, not the worst of your sins. Here come some dub double negatives. None of your sins have not been nailed to the cross of Christ. There's no more debt for you to pay. There's nothing left that you owe. Obedience, obedience as a believer is not a means of earning salvation, but of living in the fullness of it. Obedience is not a means to earn Christ's love, but to live in the enjoyment and the assurance of it. We obey because Christ has given everything for us, and he is worthy. He is worthy of our full devotion, our full submission, our full allegiance. That's why we obey. The only weapon Satan can use against you and me is our sin. And Christ has taken care of all of our sins on the cross. Verse 15 says that Satan has been disarmed and that Christ has triumphed. Through union with Christ, we share not only in relationship with him, but also in his eternal victory. So I'll, I'll close with this. If you have not if you have not yet put faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross for your sins, if you have not yet been united to him through faith, let today be the day. Let today be the day. Talk to one of uh, the pastors, to, to Brian Coffey or, or to myself or another pastor here. We'd love to help you take your next step toward Christ. And if you have been united to Christ, if you are trusting in his atoning work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and your eternal salvation, let's rejoice today knowing that we have been united to a glorious, victorious Savior who has canceled all of our debt and has invited us to share in his fullness and his victory forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do. We thank you for all that you have accomplished for us through Christ.
Give us, Lord, I pray this for myself and for everyone here, give us a fresh appreciation and gratefulness for your fullness, Lord Jesus, and your victory, and help us to respond today and in the days ahead with thankful obedience to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to our time of remembering the Lord's table. Uh, just a couple of things before we pass out the bread and the cup. First is uh, that this table does not belong to Chapel Street Church. It belongs to the Lord. Uh, so if you're here today for the first time, or maybe you've just been visiting recently, uh, you don't have to be a member here uh, to take communion with us. You just have to have placed your faith personally in Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you've done that, please share bread and cup with us. And as the trays are passed, notice there are two cups stacked together in each slot. Pick up both cups. The, the lower cup has the, the bread, and the, and the upper cup has the juice. Hold them until everybody's received, and I will lead us through the remembrance of the Lord's Supper. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we do come to you today with great gratitude, with a deep thanksgiving for what we remember, and that is that by your sacrifice, all our sins, all have been atoned for, have been forgiven. So let us take again this cup to our lips, this bread to our lips, with thanksgiving in our hearts for what you have done and for your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture teaches us that on the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. After the bread, the Lord also poured the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us as followers of Jesus, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this remembrance of him. Praise the Lord. Absolutely wonderful to uh, worship with you all today. Before I give the benediction, I just want to say that I'm I'm incredibly grateful to, to Brian Coffey. He's been uh, mentor, uh, mentoring me the last three months, and he's been incredibly helpful both in preaching preparations and also just uh, personally in my life. Uh, he's been a great mentor and friend, and I really respect you as a, a man of God and a leader. Uh, so you guys are greatly equipped um, with, with Brian Coffey, so very, very thankful for you, Brian. I have been uh, praying this prayer from the Valley of Vision. Have any of you read the Valley of Vision? A wonderful prayer, uh, Puritan prayer book. Um, there's this prayer called Spiritus Sanctus. And the first few lines of it, I have been praying for you all uh, since, Wednesday, uh, since Monday. So um, every day since Monday. Uh, and I wanted to give this to you as, as a benediction today. So receive these words with grateful hearts and expectant hearts as well. As the sun is full of light, as the oceans are full of water, and as the heavens are full of glory, so may your hearts be full of Christ. Go in his fullness today. Amen.